You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. I just uh, got back from a little Labor Day vacation. Aaron was on vacation. Evan was also on vacation. We were all gone. And so this week, we are putting a episode that first aired earlier this year uh, back down the feed. It is a conversation that I had with Elif Batuman. Elif is a novelist. She wrote a book called The Idiot, and she's a staff writer at The New Yorker. And earlier this year, she uh, published an article in The New Yorker about Japan's rent-a-family industry. The rent-a-family industry is uh, exactly what it sounds like. It is an industry that allows you to rent new family members. Uh, it was an incredible story, and I don't know that we've ever had more requests for an author to come on the show than after that piece came out. And so uh, I wrote Elif an email and asked her to come on. And uh, the conversation which you're uh, about to listen to, it's about the most fun that I've had doing this show. I'm not even going to try and explain why it was just, um, it felt like a real uh, honor just to get to sit in that room for a while. So here is my conversation from uh, June with Elif Batuman, and we'll see you with a new episode next week. All right, you sound fine, I think. Can okay. you just talk a little bit more? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what I had for breakfast, which was, I'm proud to say, overnight oats, which I had the foresight to make yesterday. Oh, that's yeah. very adult. Were, it was very adult. They, yeah, um, that is super responsible. Yeah, with almond milk and chia seeds. Oh, shit. Yeah, so I'm you here with the full power of <laughs> you Omega. Can go fight fires now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with my eyes. <laughs> Are you, a, are you a responsible person? Do you, like, is that in character with you eating such a responsible breakfast? I don't know. I think I'm trying to get, uh, like many other people, I've sort of jumped on the self-care wagon lately out of becoming an insane person. So, you, yeah. You what, what is character anyway when you look in the broad historical long durée of it all? That's a great question. Do you have an answer <laughs> for that question? No. I've been reading about the author function and it's... The who function? Author. I don't know what that means. It's like, so Roland Bart wrote this essay that I'm sure you've heard of, The Death of the Author, where he was like, oh, we can't talk about authors' biographies. The work has to stand on its own. And then Foucault wrote a response that was called, what is an author? Where he was like, well, okay, yeah, we're going to talk about the work, but like, what is the work if it's not something that's produced by an author? The author is actually a function of discourse that we impose and like play in certain kinds of ways. And it's all super sinister and it's like it comes about because you need someone to punish for copyright and libel law and then it becomes this like locus of death because the writer is disappearing into the lacuna and you know they're like happy happy guys <laughs> those guys are having a good time yeah they're having a good time and you've just been thinking about that like idly i actually i after a long time of like resisting and being very irritated by questions about fiction versus nonfiction and thinking it was like a non-question, I sort of suddenly, like over six months, decided that before I can do anything, I have to address the question of fiction versus nonfiction, which has sent me back to my, I'm sorry to say, my graduate dissertation on the theory of the novel. And now I've 
I've gotten into like why are novels fictional? Why do they have to be fictional? And the rise of the, what they call the rise of fiction, although then people object to the term rise. And it, it um, yeah, so that's I'm kind of deeply immersed in that right now. I just want you to, I, we're just going to, like, we've, we've started. Oh, okay. Just cool. so you know. All right. Uh, <laughs> in case that wasn't clear. Okay. We're just now, this is the podcast. Okay. Okay. Uh, wait a second. Wait a second. Uh, we're going to go back. Yeah. Just a second here uh, to, <laughs> to when you um, decided that you cared about fiction versus nonfiction. Yeah. Um... How does that happen? Like, uh, here's a question that I have for you. Yeah. How does your brain work? Like how how did that happen? How did you uh how did you just stumble into like I'm going to care about that now? Yeah, I I have a very strong personal attachment to the novel. I always liked to read novels and I assumed that I would write novels and then instead I ended up writing nonfiction because that's what I was able to publish at a certain time and I got really into it and many aspects of it were delightful. And then I was writing essays and criticism, and I published this book of essays about Russian literature. And then I moved to Istanbul, where I just randomly got a job at the wonderful Koch University as a writer in residence. And I was living there, and I'd already been writing for The New Yorker, but I started writing about Turkey from Turkey. So I was sort of in this foreign correspondent-like position, which was super exciting and not what I had expected or planned on at all. And it was a fabulous, fabulous opportunity. At the same time, I started to feel that there was a certain gap between the kind of writing that I wanted to do, um, the kind of writing that I imagined myself doing and the kind of writing that fits in magazines. And I, my plan was to write a book called The Two Lives, which was based on a phrase from a Chekhov story, The Lady with a Little Dog, about um, this guy realizing that he lives two lives and one is public and known to everyone. And for some reason, maybe by coincidence, everything that's important to him is hidden in the second one, the secret one. And I was writing these articles that were about very different subjects, none of them hugely topical. So they were, you know, first I was writing a story about Kafka, and then uh, then I went to Turkey and I was writing about like... Um, football fanatics and then there was one about Dante and then one about bird watching and I just started to feel like an insane person because like for three months I would just be like football 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 and then I was like the white-headed sandpiper like (laughs) but like I'm a person right so there was stuff that to me either arbitrarily and historically or because of things that I chose that connected all of those things and I felt like that was some kind of story that I also wanted to tell and like I understood why there's no place for it in the New Yorker because you want to read an article supposing that you want to read an article about birds you don't necessarily want to know the writer's like intellectual history and their interest in Kafka that's a different thing so I was going to try to write this book, The Two Lives, that would be something between fiction and nonfiction. And I was very intent that it should be called a novel because I wanted to write about various aspects of my personal life. And I did not want to be on the record for saying that they were true or not true. Mm -hmm. And the feeling that I had about fiction versus nonfiction is that if you say something is nonfiction, especially if you have the privilege of working with fact checkers, like it's very, you're making a truth claim. You're saying someone called these people up on the phone. You're saying that this could be, you know, used as information about the world by someone. And if you're calling something fiction, there's kind of an understanding in our culture now that it's invented. But actually, all I think it's saying is that you're not making a truth claim. You're saying whether or not it happened is not really important. And, you know, it's natural for people to be curious and to try to figure it out, but it's just not part of that particular work. So then when I was pitching this book to my agent and to publishers, I encountered the suggestion that this should be a memoir or it should be nonfiction. And this was something that made me feel increasingly embattled, like I was being, I don't know, I really, I was kind of depressed at the time and felt sort of beleaguered and belabored. And I would hear something like that and think, like, these people want me to go on the record saying that I had an abortion and how could they demand that I do that? And, you know, why why don't I have the courtesy offered to me of calling something fiction if it's an issue that's in my personal life that I want to write about, but I don't necessarily want to put on the factual record. And isn't that why fiction exists? And I also, I studied comparative literature uh, for many years. So I, uh, one thing that was always on my mind was how 
historically and geographically and culturally provisional the categories of fiction and nonfiction are, like those terms, they're not really translatable into any language that I know. I taught nonfiction in Turkey. I was in a nonfiction conference in Bulgaria, and they don't have, they don't use those words. Mm -hmm. The closest that people get is they have like a term for like belle lettre, or like in Russian, they have like belle lettristica, which is like, but that'll include memoir and essay and letters. And the opposite of that is documentary. So it's close, but it's not exactly the same. So I was like, you know, why do I have to, I was just very impatient. And I just wanted to be allowed to call things novels and to just have that be the end of it. And I felt kind of resentful whenever I was asked to talk about it or to think about reassigning genre. And things kind of went like that. And so my first book, The Possessed, I actually wanted to write it as a novel, which I thought of as a, a novelistic retelling of Dostoevsky's novel, The Demons, set in a Stanford-like comparative literature program. So it was quite autobiographical. And, and, and everyone who I talked to was like, nobody wants to read a whole novel about graduate students, like just nobody. So, But you know, if you do it as nonfiction, there are people who feel bad about themselves because they haven't read all of the Russian classics. And if they think they can just read like a short kind of funny book that will tell them what it's about, that'll be attractive to people. So call it nonfiction. <laughs> and it wasn't really clear to me, like, why can't people learn about Russian classics from a novel just as well as from a nonfiction book? But that's not how it works. Fiction, you're not supposed to learn anything. I Like all of this, <laughs> I, I can still feel the residual impatience coming out. But the thing that changed my mind, it was a I was unable to write that book, The Two Lives, that I had been trying to write. It just got too complicated. It was too close to my real life. There were, were too many things that I didn't know how to write without compromising myself and other people and all of the privacy issues and were just too overwhelming. So what I ended up doing was going back to a draft of an autobiographical novel I'd written many years earlier, which was published last year as The Idiot. And... Then I ended up promoting that book because it was my first novel. And the publisher and the, the agent that time did not say, why don't you call it a memoir, which I was really happy about, even though it was closely based on my experiences. But in interviews, that was a question that I got asked a lot. You know, this is, you're a Turkish-American person who was at Harvard in 1995, and so is the main character of your book. So why did you decide? Why did the story demand to be told as fiction and not as nonfiction? And then, you know, I would go on this whole long riff about like, Bakhtin and dialogism and heteroglossia and just everyone would leave feeling bad. Um, <laughs> um, not to brag. <laughs> but, so then I, you know, the reception of The Idiot happened and there were various things about it that were kind of interesting to me. Um, like people, a lot of people had questions about why the two main characters, spoiler alert, uh, they don't have sex, the two main characters in the book. Um and the degree to which people took up that question, it just wasn't something that I'd expected people to fixate on to that extent. And somehow from that thought, I started writing a sequel, what I thought was going to be a novel that was a sequel to The Idiot called Either Or. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in the middle of writing that. This is now getting to the answer of the question. And uh, so it's like toward the end of 2017 and like promotion for the idiot is winding down and I'm getting moving on either or and I'm thinking it's going to be a novel. And then all of this Me Too stuff started happening. And for some reason that in a way that I hope to write about and haven't quite put my finger on yet, that really changed how I thought about public and private narratives. And it made me think that a lot of my resistance to calling things nonfiction was based on an idea of propriety and privacy hmm. that involved covering up a lot of ways in which women traditionally take the hit for problems that happen in life. And women are just supposed to kind of swallow those and gracefully disappear. And that has sent me back to a question that I used to think about a lot in graduate school, which is why why are novels fictional? And so the reason I was looking at Foucault is that Foucault talks about the author being somebody who who can be prosecuted. The reason that you need an author is because there's... So I always wondered, is there someone who's made a Foucauldian 
argument about the rise of fiction, which says that fiction only exists because of libel laws. Is there, does someone like that exist? And I found that there actually in the 80s, someone did write that book. His mm -hmm. name is Leonard Davis. And uh, the book is called Factual Fictions. So I started reading that. And now the book that I originally thought of as being a continuation of The Idiot in a novelistic form, I think is going to be a series of essays actually about wanting to continue the idiot about some of the memoiristic material and what I thought about doing with it and about questions of form <laughs> and and the rental relatives kind of played into that because in the middle of when I was rethinking this um the relationship between fiction and nonfiction, I unexpectedly got an assignment to go to Tokyo and report a story about how you can rent a family yeah and that also really changed how I was thinking about fiction and nonfiction because the relationships that I was writing about and trying to learn about were technically fictional relationships, but they were also real relationships. And trying to think about the border between that also destabilized my ideas. I can imagine that last point. I, I really want to talk to you about that article, but I have a couple of other things that now I need to say to you. Uh, one of them is... That was an amazing answer. Oh, thank you. That was incredible. You were talking for like 20 minutes. Oh, Lord. That was amazing. <laughs> uh, I'm just very happy to be here. I'm very happy to be sitting here with you. This I'm is a this is a, this is a privilege. Oh, you just put mine. like a thousand different thoughts in my head. I don't even know what to ask you next. This is just fun. Oh, thank you. I'm Because I'm sitting at home in this spiral of thoughts and Foucault's uh, and... This is just a privilege. <laughs> Hey, I'm going to put things with Elif on hold for just a second and tell you about our sponsor. It's Google Play. Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right. With hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte, no subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. Uh, sometimes for the show, I've got to cram. I've got to read a book or two books or three books very, very quickly. And uh, I don't have a lot of time to sit and read, but I got all this commuting time. And uh, listening to an audiobook can be a very efficient and pleasurable way of reading a book before a show. I've done it a bunch of times with Google Play in preparation for episodes, but did you know another book that is available on Google Play is The Idiot, written and narrated by Elif Batuman, the guest on the very show that you're listening to. There's no way that you are listening to this interview and you do not want to go read Elif's book. So go read it. But instead of actually reading the physical copy, listen to it as an audiobook on Google Play. And get this, for a limited time, you can get 10 bucks off your first book, over $10, by visiting g.co slash play slash longform. That's g.co slash play slash longform. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. Let's get back to Elif. That's so much that you uh, just said. It also sounds like maybe you're starting to circle in how you feel about it, although uh, not completely. Not completely, yeah. So how do you figure it out? If, I don't If not know. really yet, how do you figure it out? So when I was trying to get started as a writer around my last years of graduate school, I was you know, pitching books and telling people about The Possessed. And I spent a long time trying to like describe the kind of book that I wanted to write. And really no one was interested. And I had this feeling of, oh, this isn't going to work out for me. And then when I actually- Like writing wasn't going to work yeah, out for Yeah, this writing thing is not going to work out for me. And actually when I stopped trying to describe what I wanted to do and actually do it, things went much better because I think I wasn't able to- describe exactly what something was going to be like or you know you'll say it's this boring thing but it's actually going to be interesting and funny like people don't believe you but if you can do something that's a little bit interesting or funny then that works a lot better than announcing you're going to do it do you remember so, a piece like you put before someone instead of just trying to tell them what you were going to do well i did propose a novel that was basically the things that are in the idiot but without showing them the actual text and the voice. And I think that the description that I had of it, I just remember being told by someone, this sounds like a literary analysis of a text that does not exist yet. <laughs> 
And I think that was probably true. And in a way that um, I was a very obsessive student and I, you know, I was always applying for things. And that's a whole different mode of writing. And I'm really trying very hard to get myself out of that and into just writing the actual parts of the, I think it's going to be more than one book, actually. You're talking about the stuff that comes next? Yeah. So I'm working you on You haven't this done book. that before? Like just written what you wanted to write instead of instead writing of something writing about, what, about you... what I want to yeah. write? I know it sounds insane, but no, other than like with a magazine assignment, I don't have the opportunity to do that because someone is sending emails saying we need a, you know, we need the write up of this part. So that's actually been a great gift to have to produce things like that. And actually, I mean, my first book, The Possessed, most of it consisted of stuff that I'd written under deadline for different magazines and for N plus one. So yeah, maybe if I was just left to my own devices, I would just be describing, writing long, unreadable descriptions of books that nobody <laughs> wanted to read. Do you like one mode of writing more than the other? I don't know. The other day I was talking to a friend of mine who's a novelist. I don't know if it's okay to mention who. I think he would be okay with it. Christian Jungerson, he's a wonderful Danish novelist. He wrote a brilliant novel called The Exception. And he's, I think, written three or four novels now. And each one is just super different from the one that came before. And he's one of a few novelists who I know who, when they talk about the novel, they're like, making stuff up is this incredible freedom. And so he was, I had dinner with him and he was talking about an interview that he did where he was like, you know, like someone asked me about my process and without really thinking about it, I just said, my life consists of a, a long orgy of sensual pleasure that of giving myself over to other people and to other beings. And then he was like, then I, I realized that that sounded misleading because actually what I mean is I'm sitting at a computer the whole time just typing. <laughs> but I still thought like, I can't think of any less apt description of my experience of writing than like a long orgy of sensual pleasure <laughs> and like abandoning myself to other, you know. And I've had the experience before of talking to another novelist friend of mine who who delights in making up fictional plots. And I was like, don't you ever feel censored like you're not allowed to write about the thing that you actually want to write about or you're you know the inspiration comes from something that happened in your life so why do you then have to disguise it and make it about something else and change the person who Lydia Davis has this novel the end of the affair where she talks about she's having a, a love affair with some guy who plays the bongo drums and she's like oh god now do I have to make the bongo drums into the clarinet you know like <laughs> that's just what fiction feels like to me and Christian and, and my other novelist friends were all like, no, it just feels like I don't have to be bound to this particular thing that happened and I have the freedom to explore. And like, I also hear novelists say things like, sometimes the character does something that I don't expect. And that's when I know that I'm, it, it's like talking to people who like have done ayahuasca or belong to some cult. And that's how I felt about it until extremely recently. Like I was like, all of these people have drunk some kind of Kool-Aid where they're like, um, yeah, I'm in this like trippy zone where the characters are doing things. And I and I would think to myself, if they were men, honestly, I would think, wow, this person is really has devised a very ingenious way to avoid self-knowledge. And if it was a woman, I would think, wow, this woman has really found an ingenious way to like become complicit in her own sort of bullying and silencing. And it's only kind of recently and with a lot of therapy, actually, that I've come to see that actually... There is a mode of fiction that I can imagine participating in where once I've kind of freed myself of a certain amount of stuff that I feel like I have to write about, which has gotten quite large by this point, um, it would actually be fun to make things up and play around with things. Actually, like, so with the rental relative story, somebody optioned it to do a scripted TV series and they're proposing to move it out of Japan and just have it be about rental relatives. And just thinking about that as a device that could lead to different plots has been like, it's like a fun kind of pro like, and it doesn't have to do with censorship. It's just like a different kind of thinking. So I'm trying to open my head up to that. How often do you talk about writing and therapy? That's, um, probably like 80% of the time. <laughs> and it's made your writing better? I don't know. I mean, it's made it possible. I, I was having some block-like issues when I started and I don't have them anymore. So yeah, I guess it's been helpful. 
and it's even helped you think about this divide, which now it feels like you're uh... so basically what I hear you saying is there's like a bunch of like hard work mm-hmm. that you feel like is sitting in front of you. Yeah. But then on the other side of it, you get to like do some ayahuasca and play for a little bit. Maybe. I mean, that's at least like it's a possibility that I'd never even considered as existing. And even if I'm not sure that I'm going to do it. Yeah. That that glimmer of the ayahuasca play does exist now. And that does make the world seem bigger and a little less daunting. What's the hard work between uh, here and there? Well, I guess there were all of these years where I was trying to write this book, The Two Lives, and I wrote a lot. (laughs) And I've written a lot in the past year also. So I have a lot of material that is both autobiographical and essayistic. And I've been going back through that now. And some of it has been written, I guess I started working on The Two Lives in 2012, which was six years ago. You know, I'm 40 now and I was 34 then. And it was a really different, I don't know, just so many things happened, changed in the world. And just as an age, I feel like, I don't know, 40 and 34 are so different. Like a lot of those things seem very dated. And one of the things that I'm trying to figure out now is like when I go back and read something that I've written in the past and I feel, I'm sure this has happened to you, you read something that you've written in the past and you feel like different pulls where you're like, oh, this part of it is really good. And this part of it is like really embarrassing and horrible. And this part of it is just like deeply wrong and misguided in a way that I can see a little bit more clearly now. And then the effort to separate those things, I've been wondering, actually, this sounds just like my therapy, I'm sorry to say, but but I, I start to wonder if the effort to separate those things, is that just about not wanting to write that time off as time that's done and I, I'm not going to go back to that piece of writing and it, it must have served its purpose, but or is it because there's actually something interesting there that I want to recover and rehabilitate? Is it actually an important piece of data for what I want to know about the world? Or are you just like trying to get some closure from that slightly embarrassing get, person? Yeah. Am I trying to get closure from that embarrassing person? And if the experience that is underlying it is a negative one, which for me is like 98% of the time, am I trying to like cash that in and get some kind of benefit out of it later, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a way that a lot of writers think about, especially autobiographical writers. Think about pain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like there's going to be like a payout later. Yeah. You cash it in and yeah. So where, where'd you land on that one? As you go back and excavate this six-year-old stuff. As I go back and excavate, I'm at this point leaning towards trying to take what I think of as a generous view, which is thinking I wrote it for a reason and not out of, you know, not just to, out of a cynical need to cash in or a pathetic need to cash in and that there was some genuine truth mission going on. And I'm going to work with that assumption for a while and see how it goes. Are there... um? 2018 questions that you're trying to answer with this work Um, things that don't feel dated things that feel current yeah i mean so i'm i'm thinking a lot about the relationship between the novel and nationalism and the novel and imperialism and how mutually determining they are i'm just reading this edward said book from you know 1993 but it's new to me about culture and imperialism (laughs) where he's like where he talks about the novel and imperialism being mutually constitutive in a way that seems very plausible to me Although also I'm kind of a utopian, so I also sort of feel like the solution to many of the problems that come from nationalism and tribalism are somehow in the novel because it's this source of bringing different discourses into conversation. Um, Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about gender relations. So the reason the new book is called Either Or is because one of the things that I wanted to write about was my experience in my second year of college reading Kierkegaard's Either Or Um, So in my second year of college, this is also something that's in The Idiot. There's um, the main character, Céline, and her best friend, Svetlana. They talk about living an aesthetic versus an ethical life. And Céline decides that she wants to live an aesthetic life. And this is quite autobiographical. I did decide in college that I wanted to live an aesthetic life. And uh, so, you know, I decided to study about it. And I read this book by Kierkegaard where basically, I mean, this is like a gross reduction, but basically an ethical life means you get married and an aesthetic life means that you go around seducing and breaking young girls. And I also read this book, Nadia by André Breton, which was supposed to be like the first surrealist novel. And it was kind of a manifesto about surrealism and a novel at the same time. And that also was about basically seducing and destroying this young girl. So I remember reading those books 
when I was 19 and being quite confused as a, you know, young girl, what to make of them. So if I want to live an aesthetic life as a young girl, do I seduce young girls? Do I just be seduced? Do I seduce a lot of guys? And basically it led to a program that, um, that was neither enjoyable nor, I would say, salutary, although maybe now I can write about it and that'll be helpful. But recently, I guess with the Me Too stuff too, I've also been thinking about the extent to which... So the idea of a of living an aesthetic life and of having a life that's like a story, that's an idea that I think that I got from novels and I did to a large extent get from novels, but far more pervasively, I and my friends got those ideas from movies. And there's something about realizing that those movies that were made in the 80s and the 90s that showed women in this particular way were made by directors and producers who were treating women in a certain way that has really made me question the relationship between male hetero desire and the novel. And, you know, like the novel's a love story, but that's how can you separate it from the consciousness of a straight man in love? So now, like, another thing that I've been, I mean, I don't know if we want to go into this, but I'm uh, I'm actually dating a woman now for the uh, after many years of dating men. And that has changed how I think about the possibilities of narrative, to be honest, because when I was writing The Two Lives, and also when I was writing The Idiot, a lot of the possibilities that I w- was thinking about were framed by either the woman gets the man or she doesn't get the man. And I hadn't even realized how heteronormative those ideas were. Now, when I'm reading about the history of the novel and the theory of the novel, it seems very striking to me that the theories of fiction that we have in English for the modern novel that are about invention and freedom come largely from Henry James. And also, I think from E.M. Forster, I think his aspects of the novel was really important to a lot of current novelists. And that those were both gay men writing hetero love stories either before or after, but in the living memory of when Oscar Wilde was put in prison. You know, so like I love Henry James, but like I wouldn't say he's someone who was super honest with himself and the world about his desires. And so what does it mean that that is the novel that the form, Mm. you know, so so the question was about what contemporary issues am I thinking about? I guess those would be nationalism, tribalism, and and gender fluidity, I'd have to say. How's dating a woman? (laughs) It's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Yeah. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. I'm really happy too. How's that affecting your writing? I mean, I've become a lot happier, and I think that that has made me, like, whatever irritation and angst I used to feel when I was asked in an interview about fiction versus nonfiction and that feeling of defensiveness that I I would have, that has, for some reason, eroded to a great extent since I've been with my current partner. (laughs) And my therapist has suggested that it's involved with being with a woman now and being freed from various I don't know. I've had a lot of dreams where like I'm driving on the left lane of a highway and I need to go on an exit off of the right. And I'm like, how am I going to change all of those lanes in time? And then like I just go and I somehow make it. And you're just off the highway. I'm yeah, I'm off the highway. I'm on the right road. You know, it's like Dante. And it's a road that I could see down. And like now I can't really see down it, which is for me, has been very pleasant. Wait, sorry, I lost you at the end. You went from being able to see where you were going to not being able to see, and that's freeing? It was freeing because I felt like there were almost like, there was this feeling of doom, like I could see where everything was going and it wasn't anywhere good, and everything seemed kind of inescapable and set by society and like... So you were driving on a road and there was just like uh, bad weather ahead. Yeah, exactly. you could see it. Yeah, I could see it. And now it's like, uh, could be any kind of weather. Yeah. But there's like a bend. Yeah. 
That seems good. Yeah. It <laughs> <laughs> seems like uh, uh, connected sort of to uh, maybe having a little bit of access to the idea that you could, you know, like ayahuasca novel sometime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fuck, that's great. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I think that that like the title either or I was really hoping that this time because I, I wrote two books with Dostoevsky titles and I was hoping that you know, I would finally write a book with a title that I had thought of, and but either or has just kind of stuck to it, and I might change it, but... It's in your control, you know. It is in my control. It is in my control. I could just drive off that highway, too. But there's something about the either or that, I don't know, it's related to me with that driving down the road and then going off the other one that, I guess, ironically, that means abandoning the either or. Help me again. I didn't follow. I lost <laughs> you at the end. Wait, why does that mean abandoning it? Well, I mean, like, I guess the road that I could see down was this road that involved certain binaries. And I guess, I don't know. I think what I'm realizing about, I don't even, I think realizing is maybe an overly generous word, but what I'm like <laughs> feeling or groping towards with fiction and nonfiction is that maybe there isn't quite the binary that I thought or that there's a way of making a space in it to do things that I didn't think were possible. It is funny that this is like, a very weird time to be doing an interview because my thoughts about everything are in so much flux. I'm having a great time. This okay, is a perfect time. Fun too. Okay. It's a perfect time to be doing an interview. <laughs> it seems like notable to me that when you were on the like long road where you could see the weather up ahead, you also were just like fucking annoyed by this question, mm -hmm. sort of like put off by the yeah. entire conversation. And now it seems to be like, it seems like fun and also the stakes seems sort of lower to yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Like it's like, I don't know, it also might not be that important. Yeah, it might not. <laughs> except, except for uh, this idea, which I've not heard before, which is, is uh, I think a quite powerful one, which is that perhaps the choice to make things fiction is out of propriety. That feels like um, compelling to me. Well, I actually, so my dissertation in grad school, the, it was a sort of a theory of the novel, which kind of whatever theory that you do depends on what you think the first novel is. And I was, you know, from the Don Quixote camp. And so I've been reading about the life of Cervantes. And there was a book that I just read called The Man Who Invented Fiction about Cervantes written by a professor whose name I don't remember, I think at Johns Hopkins. But he um, he was talking about how, so basically Cervantes was a war hero. He fought against the Ottomans when he was a young man. He wrote poems about the divine right of monarchs. He really believed all of this stuff. And then he lost his hand and he came back to Spain and he spent years trying to get veterans benefits like applying literally for like grants to get like money to do different things and to basically to survive and not being able to so he became a tax farmer collecting money for the spanish armada from really poor people and he became hugely disillusioned with the imperial enterprise and that's so it's in his 50s that he writes don quixote about an insane person who is insisting on going around and seeing the world as if it's this like perfect world of the chivalric romance, which is a form that glorifies kings and aristocrats and knights and hierarchies and all of these things. And he has all of these misadventures and he gives a bunch of crazy speeches. And one reason why Cervantes presumably came up with that device was because he had to get past a lot of censors and he couldn't criticize the king. He couldn't say those things openly. And it would be less interesting. Like it's a lot more interesting and fun to have an insane person talk about how great something is than it is to just say in your own voice, this thing is terrible. Yeah. Since we're doing this interview in this time. Yeah. Like when you're, when you're uh, trying to figure things out, like a lot of the time, I feel mm -hmm. like a lot of the interviews you've done, uh, or right after a book comes out yeah. and you figured it out mm -hmm. and then you're just explaining what you figured out. Yeah. Uh, and also a lot of the time that we talk to people on the show, they're in that mode. Yeah. They're in the uh, explaining what they figured out stage. Yeah. So since it's rare to catch someone <laughs> in this other time, yeah. like on the other side of that circle, it might be helpful for people who are listening. Like what do you do all day during the figure it out time? Oh yeah. What do I do all day? 
right now I'm picturing you just like wandering around New York thinking about these things. But I'm, I'm interested in actually the process of the figuring out. How do you do that? Well, what I was doing before, I was recently converted to Scrivener, which everyone was telling me how great it was. And I was like, I can't do it. I can't do the startup cost. I can't learn a new thing. And then actually my partner's sister is writing a book and she showed me the actually seeing the whole book laid out in Scrivener with the chapters and the sources that made me really excited about her book and about the possibilities of books. So that was at around Christmas. So after that, I came back and I started to go through my computer and look up all of the, because my previous MO was to start writing things in just a bunch of different word files. And they had sort of descriptive names, but I would eventually forget what they were. And a lot of them were repetitive. I also had gone through this period of doing like Marie Kondo. I, I conmarried my apartment and um, I moved recently. Anyway, so... Did you so conmarry your computer too? Yeah, that's exactly. I conmarried my, my actual papers, which actually my cat helped a lot because I had some papers that I, I wasn't sure if they sparked joy or not. And my cat urinated on them. And then they <laughs> he made it a lot clearer that they weren't should, sparking joy. You should write a self-help book. Yeah, I should. It's I like, should. Uh, you yeah. and your cat. Yeah. yeah. Teamwork. Let, yeah, let your cat pee on your stuff. <laughs> yeah. It, it, he, it's like a magic eight ball of cat piss. Yeah. Yeah. He peed on some of my diaries from 1993. <laughs> I was like, I guess those weren't that important. I wasn't doing great thinking then. <laughs> um, yeah. So... I kind of conmarried the computer and I, with Scrivener, you can see, so I'm sure many of your listeners use it, that you can see the file as itself in a list and then you can also turn it into an index card. So I started grouping all of the things that I'd written into like larger aggregations to see if they looked like books. So that took a, a long time. Then I went to Japan and, and that was in January, end of January. And then I, I was writing that. Then I went to... We're going to talk about that next. Okay, yeah. Then I went to McDowell where I finished the Japan story and then I was like, okay, now it's time to finally get back to this book. And I um, I found myself wanting to read a lot of like history about the 16th and 17th century rise of the newspaper and the novel in England. And I was like, that sounds like a waste of time because like... I do have kind of a deadline for the book and that's not that wasn't in the proposal. <laughs> I don't know that cuz that was also you're in this like kind of trippy environment and it felt like okay to do things that I wasn't but I I don't know. And I was like I wonder if I'm wasting my time. And then after that I just felt like a little bit like okay, maybe I'm not wasting my time and I should just like and then I actually told that to my editor who's not my book editor and he was like all we needed was you to waste more time. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, great. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but since I got back, I've been, um, I've just been reading and then I've been reading a lot and then typing up quotes and trying to organize them in different files, also in Scrivener. And then I've also been going back and looking at autobiographical material and trying to sort of correlate it with what I've been reading. Yeah, so I'm mostly just sitting there staring at Scrivener, alternating between staring at Scrivener and reading. How much of like, like when that moment happens where you're like, my brain is telling me that it's interested in the rise of like the novel and newspapers in England in the 16th and 17th century. Yeah. How fully do you just like trust those instincts? I mean, the way you describe it is kind of like a, like a thought just like yeah. bubbling up and you're like, oh, that's an interesting thing that my brain has produced. I wonder yeah. whether I will like take it or not take it. You know, one of the most important people in my writing career was a teacher who I had in, in college. Her name was Eva Badowska. And she, when I was in college, I had a lot of attitude problems and they were quite related to writing. I never turned in anything at the length requirement. Everything was always 15 times longer, written in a really annoyingly small font. And I would just bring in all of this stuff that was, you know, not necessarily hugely relevant. And now that I, I've had the experience of teaching writing in colleges, I see students like that. And I'm like, I wish that you would just disappear off the face of this earth. <laughs> <laughs> it's It feels so aggressive and annoying. But, you know, what can you do? I was that person. And but anyway, so this teacher who I had in college was like, 
you know, all of the things that you're writing about are actually interesting and they're interesting to you for a reason and they will be interesting to other people. So like my thinking to myself was like I, I would get back criticism from teachers that were like, I can't really follow you here. What I followed was interesting, but I don't know about the rest of this. And I would react to that with some level of exasperation and think like, oh, my ideas are too complicated. I can't, not just exasperation, but dauntedness that I guess my ideas are not capable of being explained to another person. And then I had this one teacher who was like, you know, if something is interesting to you, it's interesting to you for a reason. Like you're not a Martian who came from outer space. It's going to be interesting to other people too. But you can't like imagine that you're taking the person for a ride in a car. Like you have to tell them when you're starting and where you're going. You say on your left, you'll see this. This will remind you of something that you might have seen on your right earlier. A little bit ahead, you're going to see this other thing. And she was like, nobody, you know, you can't just put the person in the car and just like drunk drive them around like a crazy person being like, look at this and look at this and look at this because like they'll get sick. And so I try, I guess like the natural voice that I have that talks to myself in my head is kind of like hostile and berating. But I have like a generous charitable self that I try to mobilize as much as I can, which does say that things that are interesting to me can be interesting to others. And it's a matter of cracking the puzzle of how to convey it, which often means cracking the puzzle to myself. Like I have to realize why I was interested in it in the first place. Can we talk about rental families for a second? Yeah, let's talk about rental families. That was the whole reason I wanted to talk to you. Mm. And now we've been talking for like an hour. <laughs> we didn't even talk about it yet. Yeah. Why don't you uh, uh, just quickly describe mm. that story? So it turns out that there is a business model in Japan, mostly in Tokyo, where you can rent a relative. And there are a few companies that do this. The main purpose that they're used for is to rent wedding guests. But they can also be, I don't know, there's lots of different situations where people want to. So maybe you're marrying someone who your parents don't approve of, but you need to have your parents present at the wedding to save face and to preserve social proprieties. So you can go and rent actors to impersonate your parents. And so I talked to two people who run these kinds of agencies and who are their actors themselves. And they have sort of a cast of people who they dispatch to different situations. And I also talked to some clients who had rented relatives in different circumstances. And so a little bit more rare, I think, than a wedding guest and the public scenarios are people who rent relatives for their own private use. And one example of this was I talked to a man whose wife had passed away and his daughter was estranged and he began to hire a rental wife and daughter to have dinner with him very occasionally, like not it's not like they lived with him or anything. But and then I, I also um I rented a mother for an afternoon. Was that story assigned or was it one that you pitched? That was assigned. That was an amazing assignment that I'm very grateful for. That's a good assignment. Yeah. The article tracks at least um, like the way that my brain would think about it. So like the first third or half or maybe even two thirds of the article is just kind of like it, it sort of has the air of like, isn't this wild? Mm-hmm. Like, that idea. Yeah. You can rent relatives. Yeah. It's like a wild idea. Yeah. It kind of feels like fiction. And the article like almost reads like yeah. a short story sort yeah. of. Like just like imagine a world in which you yeah. can rent relatives. Like yeah. uh it has a kind of like black mirror ish mm -hmm. qualities yeah, to it. Totally. You know, it feels like kind of like isn't this like crazily inhuman, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it turns. And I guess I wondered whether that turn uh, was how you experienced it as mm. well. Like what your assumptions were mm -hmm. about renting relatives before you got there and as you started to have those conversations and how that changed or whether you knew the turn all along. I think the turn was largely a process of the amazing editing. I, When I was first thinking about the assignment, the main thing that I was thinking was I don't want this to be a story about like things are crazy in Japan. Like I wanted it to be about the human situation and about the extent to which relationships are, I don't know, I wanted to problematize the idea of unconditional relationships. And it was actually my editors who 
had said that after I turned in the first installment or the first draft, they had said we need more of a sense of why Japan, why does this happen in Japan? So actually, the um, I wrote the kind of the stuff that's at the very end with the transference and the turtles and everything that um, I wrote that first. And the specific history about Japan, um, yeah, that I wrote later. The history stuff. The history stuff. But yeah. the the transference and basically, I don't know. Maybe you could explain that idea better than I can. Can you just like uh, so walk I, me through the turn, basically? <laughs> so in the story, I write about. Um, I also write about another service where you can rent someone to help you cry, and that you can choose from a, a menu of different. They're handsome men. It's a handsome men weeping service, um, mostly for women, and you can choose your handsome man from a menu of types. There's, you know, the little brother and the tough guy and the, a dentist for some reason. And then there was a swordsman. So I chose the swordsman. And so I had the session with the swordsman where I was supposed to cry and he like read me a sad book. And then we looked at some videos and I was like, almost going to cry, but like not really. And then it seemed like everyone else besides me cried, like including the translator. So I felt a little bit inadequate afterwards and I was kind of stressed out. So then I ended up booking a in-room massage which at first I thought, oh, that's too expensive. But then I thought, oh, I'm missing my shrink appointment and this is actually cost less than that. So I'm saving money. So then like the massage therapist comes over and I'm like having this and I'm just like, who is she substituting for? Like I felt all of this like love for her that was not just despite the fact that I was paying her, but because I was paying her because that meant that like I didn't have to do anything for her. like she could just concentrate on me and that was okay. And then I started to think like, who is she substituting for? Is it for the swordsman who didn't make me cry or for the therapist I didn't see today or for, you know, my parents who like the relationship with, with your parents is supposed to be what you go to psychotherapy to replay in some way through the idea of transference. And then I thought, oh my God, it's turtles all the way down. And then my next thought was, can you rent a turtle in Japan. And so after the massage, I looked it up and there I found that there was a, a turtle cafe in Yokohama, which was like 30 minutes away where you can, if you buy a cup of tea, you can play with the turtles. <laughs> so that was one of the first things that I wrote. It's just interesting that that's like the order of operations. Yeah. Because it feels in the piece, it feels sort of like, feels almost revelatory. Like there is, I don't know, maybe this is just my own bullshit, but there's an idea of like renting relatives that feels like um, so far removed, you know, that you yeah. can kind of like gawk at it. Yeah. And then you start thinking about all the other places in American culture yeah. where people like. Well, um, maybe it's because before I went, I did a lot of like reading and research and stuff before I actually did any of the interviews. So I'd been thinking about like, what does it all mean? And I'd been <laughs> watching movies and stuff like that. And then when I actually went and talked to people, that was like this whole influx of specific stories. So they were kind of separate in my mind. And I think it makes sense to have the specific stories first and the kind of like ruminations afterwards. What surprised you about it? The most surprising interviews to me were with the clients who had rented relatives themselves. And I was surprised by how forthcoming and articulate they were about their feelings and their the needs that made them want to rent relatives and in general I was also surprised by the amount of self-knowledge that people seem to have I was surprised I, I talked to one guy who was a a rental scolder so one service that you can hire is someone who's a rental scolder. And when I saw that, I thought that, you know, you hire that person to berate someone who you're upset at for some reason. But no, you, you hire them to scold you because you think that you need scolding or you think that you didn't atone for something correctly. So I talked to this guy who had worked as a rental scolder and he was this like very mild mannered guy. And I was like, you know, was it hard? And he was like, yeah, it was really hard. And he was describing one of the clients who he had to scold. And the client basically told him, I'm a terrible boss. I used to be a great boss. I used to like go and hang out with my workers. Now I just play golf all day and I go to hostess clubs and I squander the company's money. And I know that they know because the accountant knows. And isn't that horrible? And then the rental scolder was like, well, since you know that, 
why do I have to yell at you now? Like, I, why can't you just do the right thing? And then the guy came up with all of these excuses and he was like, you know, no, that's not the way the, you know, if I were to do that, then they would do this. And the structure of hierarchy isn't set. Like he started like explaining stuff to him. And eventually the rental scolder got so agitated that he was able to scold the man. Um, I mean, I, I didn't unfortunately speak to the man who hired the scolder, but, but I was surprised that somebody could have that much insight into what they're doing wrong and have the insight to know that it's going to help them to have someone else come and yell at them. It was surprising. And at the same time, once I heard it, I thought, oh, that sounds right. Because one's problems are often not a huge surprise to one, and yet we don't fix them. But I guess maybe I was surprised by the insight that the guy had that it would help to have someone yell at him. Well, I mean, that's there's a bunch of like functional situations in which people rent relatives. Mm-hmm. Like Tuesday, I I need to go dad yeah. on Tuesday. Yeah. Like I'm gonna just look in the phone book for like dads. Yeah. Uh, I need a dad from like two to four on Tuesday. And then there are uh, these other people who have like some hole in their heart, like yeah. some absence in their yeah. lives. And some people in that situation fall into despair. Some people in that situation like take up knitting. Yeah. Some people begin to exercise. Mm-hmm. And then there are some people in your article who took the step of like um, hiring, you know, their dead wives mm-hmm. and estranged daughters and things to try and try and like heal and and uh well you know the the business so the the first rental relative business that I was able to find was from the late 80s early 90s and that um the the press surrounding it it got it got reported on a lot in the Japanese press and then picked up by by the foreign press most of the stories in the press were actually about um older parents whose kids were working, um, whose, whose adult children were working and didn't have time to visit them. So they would rent, um, substitute more filial children and grandchildren to come and visit them on a regular basis. And there were, you know, novels about this and movies about this. And I think maybe that like the case of the rental child is sort of like a meeting point of the pragmatic mm-hmm. and the hole in the heart situation, because it kind of exposes this problem in society that happens in Japan and that is happening here related to, you know, urbanization and neoliberalism and a decreasing safety net and a growing elderly population that's a lot like that's a I guess so the, the problem of care is both a pragmatic and a emotional concern. I think I said this to you when I sent you that note asking you to come on the show, but among the like highest volume of notes we've ever gotten after an article came out, we're asking you to come on, like uh, us oh, to get, have you on the so show. Nice. Like, like there was you. something about this article that like really touched a nerve for people. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced that. It sounds like the thing got optioned and people want to do all kinds of stuff with it, but it, it just seemed very, um, it seemed like it got people. Yeah. Like it, it hooked them. Why? Why do you think it hooked people the way it did? Um, I mean, honestly, I think, I mean, I think because society is broken, (laughs) I mean, because I think that the idea that we have of unconditional love, I mean, I write about this a little bit at the end of the piece, the idea that we have of unconditional love that seems so natural to us, that seems like it's deeply violated by the idea of hiring someone to impersonate a relative was taken advantage of by capitalism and by industrializing societies to push off the work of caregiving to women and to make it private and to have it be something that's taken care of in the house and that, you know, therefore employers can pay men less because they each have a unpaid servant at home and the women aren't really getting money because they're doing all of these things out of this unconditional love. But then, I mean, a lot of people I think now are in the situation of, 
you know, you grow up thinking that your parents love you unconditionally. And then, you know, sort of a bill kind of falls due. We just have a society that has not made provisions for care and that expects them to be automatically handled through love. And I think the idea that, I don't know. So one of the people who I spoke to for the story was a man who was being rented to play the role of a father to a little girl who had a single mother. And he, you know, he went there every two weeks and would, they would have dinner and they would go to Disneyland and they would go to movies together. And what the single mother requested was that he should be unfailingly kind. And no matter what the little girl did, he should react with kindness. And he did that. And the girl was never told that he's not her real father. So there's this potential bombshell that could be dropped on her at any moment, which is that this person who you thought was your father, who you thought loved you, was actually a paid actor. But then on the other hand, I think there's a way of thinking about it where why is the kindness and the love that he showed her invalidated by the fact that he got some money for it? Like maybe there's... To me, I feel like that there's something a little bit black mirror and dark about it, but there's also something in it to me that feels like almost like good news that there are more possibilities for more different kinds of relationships and more different kinds of love that aren't necessarily based on crippling financial sacrifice, which is sort of the model of, I don't know, I think we really associate family love with crippling emotional sacrifice in a lot of ways. And that just seems very natural to us. But like, maybe it shouldn't be and maybe it doesn't have to be that way. I think that might be one reason why people responded to it. Well, there's also, yes. I mean, yes, I think that's part of why. And then there was this other piece of it, which was, uh, so that scene, there's a kind of like climactic scene where that man who also runs one of the companies. Yeah who's been playing the role of dad yeah. intermittently for how many years? Nine years. I Nine think. years. Yeah, so she was 10 and now she's 19. Right. And you were going to meet the mom. Mm-hmm. And this guy who runs the company, you'd only known him as the guy running the company, yeah. was like, you're going to go meet the mom and, and the husband, and the uh, and the dad. Yeah. It's going to be great. It'll be a good yeah. like scene for your article. Yeah. And then he showed up and was the dad. Yeah. Which is such like, a dramatic move. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, to do- It was the, extremely disorienting. Yeah. yeah. To do the reveal that way. And then the way it plays out at the table in the article is basically he's kind of fluidly moving back and forth between- dad and company owner trying to get some press for mm-hmm. his company mm-hmm. and it's unclear uh which of them is more real yeah and i think that also at least that's part of what hooked me yeah is, is we have a lot invested in the idea that those things are binary mm-hmm. that's true you know like you'd only get to be one yeah you're either the business guy or your dad and you don't get to do it's both. It's almost of those. like fiction, and not—it's either real or it's not real. That's where I was going. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> That's kind of where I was going, though. Yeah. I think that I understand that that article was in assignment, but it seems to me like you kind of ran at the same thing, which is like it's fiction and nonfiction. Yeah, and they're bleeding together, and it felt to me like a little bit of what you were saying at the beginning in your incredible. 20 minute monologue <laughs> <laughs> which is genuinely one of my favorite things that has ever happened in this room uh, was that for a really long time fiction versus nonfiction was this hugely like charged and negative thing for you and then like you know whatever you got off the highway yeah and now it's kind of like fun to play around and think about mm-hmm. but the stakes are a lot lower mm-hmm. it's a form of play and and I think that's kind of the answer sitting at that table, too. That's how it read to me when I read your piece, which I read over and over and over again, uh, is that, like, it doesn't really matter at that table, like, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. It doesn't really matter whether, like, he's really the dad or not really the dad. Like, 
he's been there for nine years. That yeah. part, that part is true. Yeah. I don't know. This is making me very sad to think about because for the mother it mattered. What mattered? Its continuation mattered. Yeah, the act mattered. Yeah. But the label didn't matter very much. The label didn't matter. It mattered to her that her daughter not be told that he's not the real father. A lot of fuck you up. I mean, you, you know. Yeah. That daughter's 19. Yeah. What do 19-year-olds know? Yeah. Yeah. That was a joke about the idiot. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't know. I could be I could be way off. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. That's what it made me think about. Thank you. That's very helpful. Thank you. This is a pleasure. I got to oh, tell this you. This is a delight for me. Thank you. What a nice way to spend uh, a Tuesday afternoon. That's just how I feel. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Radliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, the writing department at the University of Pittsburgh, Pit Writers, and of course, Google Play. Get 10 bucks off your first audiobook at g.co slash play slash longform. Thanks to all of them for making the show possible. And thanks once again to Elif for coming in and having that conversation. Uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it since, and uh, probably a lot more time still. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.